The problem was is that the very few hits that I did get from him were from people who weren't good fits as clients. So I've learned that the network is a lot better way of uh, getting out there and, and, and finding qualified clients that, that are good fits for us. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you take control of your money, take control of your wealth, and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lode, and today our guest is Trevor Crow. Trevor is an attorney who specializes in real estate syndication law, and today we're digging into his experience working with institutional investors and what they look for when they're investing as a limited partner in real estate syndications. We're digging into that to get the perspective that those institutional investors have, what they look for, how they try to protect themselves so we as Main Street investors can learn from their goals and how they protect their investment. And then we, in turn, can maybe apply those lessons and those strategies to our own investments in real estate syndications. How can we look to protect ourselves? How can we dig into the legal documents to make sure we're protected and everything along those lines? What do the institutional big guys look for that we can take away and apply to our own investment strategy? Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today I've invested in, acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate transactions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcasts user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And if you're hearing my voice right now, that means you're not watching us on YouTube. If you'd like to see the video of this interview and all of our future interviews, we put them up on YouTube so you can engage and dig that much deeper and just join more in the conversation. And in in this case, you get to see that Trevor and I wore nearly the exact same shirt for this episode and this recording without planning it just kind of happened on accident. It's kind of funny. If you're on YouTube, you'll get to see that. And you'll get so much more out of that as well. Once again, our guest today is Trevor Crow. We're digging into institutional real estate investors who invest in real estate syndications and what they look for to protect themselves in those deals. Without any further ado, here we go. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to learn more about what the big guys look for in their real estate investments. But before we get into that, could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, what you do, and your background? Yeah, definitely. So I'll, my name's Trevor Crow. I'm an attorney in Denver, Colorado, and I work with, we do business transactions here. So I ma- mainly work with entrepreneurs. A lot of times that's in the context of real estate sponsors, as I like to call them. So either developers or just value add type sponsors who are buying real estate, usually syndicating those those deals. Sometimes it's in the form of a fund. Sometimes it's just a one-off syndicated deal. But yeah, so I'm I'm putting together all the securities documents and all the operating agreements and things like that involved that that are involved with a syndicated real estate deal. I'm um, yeah, I've been practicing since graduated law school 2009 and been in, in Denver, bounced around to a couple other firms, some 
larger firms in town. And then I decided to start my own firm in 2018 and, and then ended up merging my firm with another guy who had started his own firm in 2021. And so now that's where we've gotten to the current firm, which is called Doida Crow Legal. And we have eight attorneys. Awesome. Well, really excited to dig a bit into your area of expertise. And before we kind of dig into it, could you tell our listeners the, the typical size of a deal that you work on and, you know, give us a framework for, you know, the, the, the types of investments that you're working on the legal docs for? Yeah. So honestly, it's a, it's a very broad range. We, we help, you know, the first time syndicator and we also have hundred and and $50 million real estate fund as a client. And so we've gone, we've gone kind of the gamut on size there. And so, you know, it's like I said, it's been one-off deal, somebody buying just a, an apartment building to, you know, a fund that's buying packages of 16 hotels at a time. Awesome. Well, some smaller stuff and some bigger stuff. And just for our listeners to break the fourth wall a little bit, this is actually our second time recording a <laughs> podcast. We were disrupted before by uh, internet and weather-related issues, so I appreciate you giving it another shot. And as we dug into it previously, we were discussing your experience working with larger institutional investors who might be the only limited partner investing in a deal. And I'd like to dig into what that is like and then also maybe what our listeners as passive investors can learn from what the big guys look for in those types of deals. So let's dig into that and, and talk about like why a large investor would want to be a limited partner, just single limited partner in a deal. Yeah. And so kind of, as I'd mentioned, the, the kind of the broad range of, of deals that we do, we've seen it, seen the gamut of, of how these documents get negotiated. And, you know, as we were talking, the, this one, one-off syndicated deal type structure where you're going to go out and find friends and family and maybe some other real estate investors in town that are known as high, high net worth, worth individuals that invest in, in real estate. And, you know, they're cutting checks from 20, 25,000 to 50,000 to maybe a hundred thousand. Those, there's a lot that deals a lot different. And so that's kind of what I think you're getting at there that, you know, the negotiation is a lot different. So usually in those type deals, the sponsor comes to us and says, Hey, I have a group of people that I think are going to invest here. This is the deal. Here's how, how it's going to work. And we go out and we prepare the documents and we send them, send them out. And there's usually not a lot of negotiation back and forth. Whereas we've also had deals where they come to us and say, all right, we have this deal. We're going to buy this package of real estate and we have one capital provider. And this capital provider is a big, you know, private equity company or some, some investment firm that invests in real estate deals, but don't do the op, don't operate the deals. And so the difference between those deals is that a lot of times their attorneys are sending us the documents and saying, this is how it's going to go. We're providing, you know, we're cutting a check for $5 million and, or whatever it is, $10 million, committing $50 million, whatever it is. And, and we're going to set the terms of the deal. And so, you know, clearly if we're, some of the things that they're negotiating is from the LP side and is a very LP cited document, I would call it versus the documents we're putting together are more sponsor favorable. And so I've, you know, we're, I've been on both sides of the deal and I've argued, argued both sides of the same point, I would say on different deals, but really what we're looking at is if the big things that the, the big capital providers, the big LPs that are coming in and stroking a big check, you know, the things that they're going to have in that operating agreement that are different than most syndicated deals are one, they're going to have a large man major decision section. So it's going to say, Hey, you can't do any of these things 
without our approval. And so that, that is usually a laundry list of, of many things that they're going to say here, you just can't do this without getting our approval under the, under the operating. The other thing that they often build in is a, a loss of promote that says, Hey, if you do any of these things, then you lose your promote. And so promote is, I use that term, maybe somebody is, you've heard it as carried interest or profits interest. It's, it's really that back end payment that the sponsor gets that really makes the deal worthwhile for them. You know, usually they may have to be getting certain fees and things like that along the way, management fees, but really the, the promote is that, you know, 80, 20 split or 70, 30 split or whatever it is at the end when, when this, when they sell the property or refinance the property. And that's, you know, if the, if the project's successful, that's when they make their big money. And so that's a highly negotiated provision because that's the reason the sponsor's doing this deal is to try to get that, that promote or carried interest. And a lot of times there's a, you know, a long provision in there on when they might be removed as manager. And then that the corollary to that is once you're removed as manager, you lose your, your promote. So that's very highly negotiated in, in a piece that the, you know, a, a large capital provider is going to have in there. You know, obviously the fees get negotiated, the distribution waterfall, all that gets negotiated as well. But that's usually the terms of the, the economic terms of the deal that whether it's attractive to any investor or not, right? So if you're going out to a, even, you know, just a high net worth individual and you're going to say, hey, we're taking out, we're taking out a management fee, we're taking out an acquisition fee, we're taking out a disposition fee, we're taking out a guarantee fee and a refinance fee. And, and you know, you start piling them all on and they're going to, and nobody's going to want to invest anymore, right? So, you know, those, those are definitely more narrowly tailored, I think, when you have one capital, one LP, because they're going to want to make sure that they're, it's not overloaded in fees. Distributions, I would say, are about the same. You know, you still can get your 80-20, 70-30 split because it's that only comes after the investor has made their money, right? So, but what I do see more often, I guess, in in the larger deals is it's a more tiered structure. So it might have a several tiers in that waterfall to say, you know, First, it goes out, it goes out hundred percent to the capital provider until they've received hundred percent of their capital contributions. And then it's, then it's, you know, 95.5 until we've received a, an, an 8% IRR. Then it's, you know, 80, 20 until we receive a, a, you know, a 10% IRR. Then it's, you know, and it keeps going up, but there's a more tier structure so that they're, they're getting more, the capital providers getting more money along the way. So those are just some of the things that, that I see often in in these agreements. So I guess I'll be quiet there and see if there's any follow-on questions to that. <laughs> no, there's, there's quite a bit to that. And so a few of these things that, that I'm very curious about have to do with things like removal of the manager, loss of promote, and the, the provisions or the, the requirements that it takes to make that happen. Like, What's an example of something that is bad enough for the general partner to do that would cause them to lose a promote or, you know, just be removed from the deal entirely. Is it all fraud or is it, is it something like, is there a lighter version that still results in them, you know, being removed? And yeah. Way? So, I mean, so fraud, you would think that fraud, gross negligence, reckless conduct, things like that, it might be easy. Yeah easy gifts, you know, and, and, and that's going to be the argument on, on the investor side is that, Hey, if you commit fraud or gross negligence, you know, you, you shouldn't have your promote. And, and so it makes a lot of sense when you just say it like that, but when you really dig into the legal documents is which, you know, why, why we're here is to, to kind of go back to that, that counsel and say, Hey, so, you know, technically if, if he's, somebody steals a bag of chips from the vending machine at the bottom of the, the apartment building, that's fraud and that's theft. That's misappropriation. And so should they lose their promote for that? And so then we get into that it has to be a material 
fraud. It has to, they have to have an opportunity to cure things like that. And the other issue that gets negotiated there, which we, we try to do when we're representing a sponsor to protect them is, you know, a lot of times these organizations are maybe made up of a few principles that are really the kind of go out and, and find the opportunities and put together the deal, find the, the investors. But then there's, you know, accounting people, there's things like that, that are at, there's administrative staff. There's a lot of areas where a fraud could take place, which would technically fall to the entity because typically that, that sponsor in the, in the deal is, is an entity, right? And so, all right. So if this person is an employee of that entity and, and they were stealing money from the company, then that would be fraud and, and could lead to a removal. So we try to build in and say, Hey, if it's from one of the executive personnel or one of the key people, then yes, we lose the promote right away. Understood. If it's from one of the, you know, a lower level staff, then yes, we have to, we have to make it right. We have to bring them, we have to put money back in. We got to make sure that we have insurance for theft protection, things like that. And we get the money back into the deal. Then we don't lose our promote because it really, you know, we may have made a bad decision, hire that person, but that's the only way it was. It wasn't us committing the fraud. And so, you know, and then that can get negotiated even more to say, you know, I've had them push back and say, well, if it happens more than, than one time, then, then we can remove you for good. You know, the, if we'll give you one, one chance to have that out. And then if it happens again, <laughs> you know, so these things can, I've seen, you know, a one page removal of the, or a half a page removal of the manager section turn into, you know, a two page if we're moving to the manager section because we're, we're putting in all these other, you know, back and forth on, on nuances on what could happen and what actually constitutes a removal. So I would say that, that those are the big ones, you know, fraud, gross negligence, the, those type of things, breach of the contract, taking any action that they're not authorized to do. You know, so if there's a major decision section and, and you take a decision, make a decision to, to do that unilaterally, then, then that would be a breach. Sometimes we have carve outs in the, even for a provision like that to say, Hey, if, if it's an emergency situation that we have to do it, then, then we can do that without, you know, breaching the agreement, that sort of thing. So those are, those are really the, the big ones. You know, some of the other ones are bankruptcy of the manager. You know, if there's a property management agreement or a development agreement, if there's built in provisions in there, if those get terminated for cause, then that could also lead to a, a loss of promote. So those, those are the big ones I would say. Okay. So there, there's a good bit in there. And I, early on in my investing career as a passive investor, there, I was in a situation where one of the general partners did actually commit fraud against us and, and the other general partners, you know, took care of it and got him out. But just that situation, getting that one guy out turned into a huge legal battle, which gets into other aspects around like arbitration agreements, that kind of a thing. Do they normally look for arbitration or do they want some, cause they're the negotiating power is going to want to have like stack the deck in their favor as far as curing, you know, legal issues goes. So how do the big guys usually want to lean in that way to, do they want to go for arbitration or something else? That's a question that I can't answer very, very well because it's, it's very attorney specific. There's certain attorneys out there mm. that are just have a total allergic reaction to arbitration. And, and then there's others that say it's the best way to go. And, and, you know, so we don't do any litigation. So anytime I get a chance to talk to a litigator, I, I always ask them that same question and I've heard very opposing stances on it. And so, you know, the, the argument for arbitration typically has been that it's faster and cheap, right? Than the court system that has proven to not necessarily be the case. A lot of times, sometimes it's more expensive and it takes longer, right? 
And so the people who have had that very bad experience are like, I'm never doing this again. Whereas, you know, some people have had good experiences and, and say that to do it. So regardless, I think the, what we try to do in those provisions is if we kind of explain it to the, to the client and we try to pick, if we think if it's a large capital provider, you know, what we try to do is make sure that it's because, because they have, um, you know, more resources. So going to straight litigation with no rules is beneficial to them because they can outspend us and just, and, and do whatever they, they need to do to, to make, make it difficult for us. So what we try to do to protect the sponsor clients is to, you know, have limitations on damages to actual damages as opposed to other types of damages for one. And then two, if we're going to have arbitration, then we, we make sure that it's done, that it's very narrowly tailored on how that works. So is it one or is it three arbiters is in three is going to be more expensive than one, right? Cause they, you're paying each one of them. Whereas, you know, with a litigation, you don't have to pay the judge, but sometimes it, it takes longer. <laughs> and so, you know, in there's also different ways of doing discovery. So you can build that in. And there's also provider, arbor, you know, arbitration companies that are out there like jams or the AAA, those sort of things. And so like in Denver, we have a, a group called Arbiter Group and they're the cheapest and they're just as good. And I don't know why everybody doesn't use them, but some people are, you know, who are more national and are used to AAA, they're going to go there, but that's going to be the most expensive. And so we try to narrowly tailor it and also try to put in, you know, how many arbiters are going to be, what is their background? You know, if, if it's, and, and sometimes we do a, a, a tiered thing. So if it's under a certain threshold of a mountain dispute under $250,000, then it's one arbiter. If it's above a certain threshold, you know, I'm just throwing out numbers now, but you know, if it's above that 250 or above 500,000, then we'd look at two and we're going to ask that the arbiters have a background in, in real estate transactions. All right. And so they understand the business side of it. They're not somebody who was a former judge and now practiced family law their whole life and then was in a criminal docket as a judge. And then now they're going to try to be the arbiter of this real estate complex, real estate joint venture deal. So that's kind of what we do, but I, I don't know if there's a, a one way or the other in this context, you know, in other contexts, the other benefit of arbitration is that it's, it's private, you know, everything that goes into a court is a public forum that can be searched and found and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, that's why a lot of companies have employment agreements that are subject to arbitration because they don't want that sort of thing to get out. Gotcha. Okay. Very interesting point. So there's, there's so much here, right? And as, as smaller retail investors, retail investors are going to have less power or effectively no power in these types of situations. It's very different if you're stroking a check for fifty or $100,000 in a $50 million deal, as opposed to if you're writing the full check. You have a lot more swing in power, right? If you're, if you're writing the full check. But I still think the, there's wisdom to be extracted from things that they look for but I'm still trying to suss out like what's the best takeaway that we can have to make sure that we're protected in a deal. So what do you think are the top things that passive investors, retail investors can maybe look for in syndication documents to lean toward protecting themselves, right? There's no way there's investments carry risk, right? You're not totally getting rid of risk, but make sure that it's not fully written in this indicator's favor and you're just up a creek without a paddle. Right. So you know, some of the things to look for in my mind are, one, do check out the the fees. Cause I think there's, there are sponsors out there that get greedy with the fees. And so you want to make sure that that, that those fees, which is, is, is an economic piece of it, uh, right? But I think sometimes people skip over that. They just look at and say, all right, you know, they're going to give us a, 
they're going to give us a 8% pref and, and return of capital. And then we have an 80, 20 split or a 70, 30 split. And, and that's, and they understand that as the deal and don't even think about the fees. And so I'd say, definitely look at the fees and see, make sure they're not getting too greedy with the fees Two, look at whether you have any major decision rights. If you can, it, cause you know, I think it's reasonable to ask that you have certain decisions in there, like taking on new debt, approving a budget, things like that, that might need to be approved by a majority of the interest. So you're not saying, Hey, I have power to do this as an investor. If I'm putting in a check and I'm going to have, you know, 10% of the capital contributions into this deal, I'm not asking for, for control of this. I'm just saying that a majority of the people should be able to vote to approve. So if you can get major decision rights in there built in, even if you don't have the, the threshold to make that vote, it forces the sponsors to be more critical in those areas, you know, whether it's approving a budget taking on more debt, you know, those type of things. If you can, you know, get a, you know, loss of promote in there, that sort of thing that also kind of keeps them honest that, that may or may not be, may or may not be feasible depending on your investment and your negotiating leverage and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's hard for sponsors to argue also that they should be able to keep something for if they've committed fraud or gross negligence, that sort of thing. So, you know, you, you do have a, a very, a pretty, a moral argument, I guess, that, that is hard to counteract. Although, you know, sometimes the argument is that promotes earned on, on purchase, you know, like the real hard part was finding the deal and closing on it. And once we've done that, you know, the promote is earned if, if you get your return, right? So that, that could be the argument, but I think those are the main things is check the fees, check the major decisions and try to negotiate those in there. And then if you can, you know, really keeps them honest, if you can get a loss of promote or, and then approval of the budget, I think is one of the other ways that that is huge. If you can get some sort of major decision rights that a majority had to approve the budget, that that is huge in my mind. Great. Well, I love it. Glad we dove into this today. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and Get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Trevor, I've got three questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. Are you ready? I'm to ready go? to go. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? All right. So what has turned out to be the best investment that I've made is I, I bought a town in, in 2007. And so it didn't seem to be the best investment when 2009 came around. But now, <laughs> you know, in Denver, we've had a, a very strong real estate market. And so that's gone up. And now the, you know, the, the, cash flow on the rent that we get from that is, is always a nice check in the mail and had to do very little work on it. So I would say that's, that's been my best investment because, you know, my, my strategy in, in the stock market has been, um, buy high and sell low, which is, is not a good way to go. So <laughs> do you have a property manager running a property? You, are you, doing I'm doing it myself. Yourself? I just have the one property. So I, and, okay. and it's actually just, you know, two miles from my house. So it's uh, makes it a lot easier. Not a big deal. Cool. Great. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment was in 
search engine optimization. Paid a lot of money for that when I first started my firm, thinking that it was going to be the way to to get clients and and do marketing. And I might as well lit, lit it on fire, I think. Interesting. So do you know what, and I ask this because I've been hit up by a lot of SEO people and they make a strong pitch, but I'm not quite sold. What did they do? Like, did it not make anything? You know, just a waste of just time. Just a waste of time and money. I'm not even sure what they were doing on the back end. They were putting in keywords and things like that. That was what they were saying. But, you know, the, the problem was, is that the very few hits that I did get from them were from people who weren't good fits as clients. So mm. I, I've learned that, you know, the network is a lot better of a way of uh, getting out there and, and, and finding qualified clients that, that are good fits for us. Okay. So the last follow-up question on that particular question, but is that, has your, has your marketing budget shifted to straight networking or what's your biggest like marketing investment right now, I suppose? How's that shifted? Yeah. I mean, we've, we've don't do any pay for any SEO now we do, you know, writing, speaking and networking is kind of our marketing three, you know, three part marketing strategy. And so, you know, meeting, meeting with people is good, is good for us. And then we do have, you know, a blog and a newsletter and, and also do a, you know, some speaking like this. <laughs> That's what I was about to say is you're investing your time with us yes. today. And I certainly appreciate that. And my, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I would say it's probably say what you do and, and do what you what you say. You know, it, it's really, I, I found that business, if you follow through and do what you say you're going to do, that right there in, in and of itself puts you ahead of 80 to 90% of people out there. So I think that's the best advice that I, I would have, that I've received and, and try to implement. Great. Well, I love that. That is great advice. And Trevor, I want to thank you for joining us today, sharing all this knowledge with our listeners. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah. So you can email me anytime, Trevor at doidacrow.com. And that's D-O-I-D-A-C-R-O-W.com. Or you can check us out on our, our website is doidacrow.com. And uh, yeah, we got plenty of information on there. Like I said, blogs, YouTube videos, things like that. Or, you know, if you have a question, feel free to send me, send me an email anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.